I didn't have the fun like dollar bill trick or anything jazzy this time. We lost him a little early. But. All right, we are, um, we're talking about tithing this morning. We generally bring up the subject every October, the subject of stewardship and, and giving and all of those things. Um, October came and went, got away from us, right? But we still could use the annual reminder. It's good for us to, to be reminded because it's something that's easy to forget, you know? Should I give to the church? How much should I give to the church? It's something God's people have always needed a reminder about because money, as Scripture warns us, can, can tend to get its hooks into us and we can begin to trust in it as much or even more than we trust in the God who gave it to us. You know, if that weren't true, if we were immune to that, we wouldn't need reminders. Scripture wouldn't speak of it as often as it does. So it's a necessary topic, but it's an awkward one. Because we know, I mean, it's no secret, we know that churches and church leaders throughout history, and certainly in recent history, have exploited God's people and used the biblical principle of tithing to set up their own Ponzi schemes, right? You think about the, the Kenneth Copelands and the Creflo Dollars and the Benny Hens, right? And if you don't know who those people are, don't look them up. They're all thieves and charlatans, okay? But that's, that's a thing. There are such things as greedy thieves and charlatans who, under the guise of Christianity and invoking the name of Jesus, pick Christians' pockets to fatten their own wallets. That's, that's true. And so it it's, ends up being a sensitive subject in the church, to be sure. And we're all right to condemn those practices, by the way. We can all point at that and say, that ought not happen. But the principle remains. Should Christians give money to the church? Even in light of that? And if so, how much? I want to come at this a little differently this morning. The way these sermons usually go is they, they address the subject of stewardship directly. I want to address the subject of the kingdom of God directly and see how that motivates good stewardship and faithful giving. It's not at all bad to talk about stewardship specifically. I mean, it does remind us what we were just saying to the children, that everything that we have belongs to God. It's all his, and it's given to us into our care to steward over. We want to manage well what God has given into our care. But convinced of that, we're sure we ought to at least give some money to the church. Surely God intends for his saints to financially support the ministry of the church. But why? Before we get into how much Christians, you know, should Christians tithe, should it be 10%, I want us to think a little bit bigger picture about that. Because there's the questions like, well, wasn't the tithe, wasn't that just the Old Testament thing, right? That's just... That was, uh, that, was, that was back then. And then doesn't Paul say uh, that we're just supposed to give whatever we choose to give cheerfully? I want to answer those questions for us. But I want to keep something in view here I think should really make all of this a lot easier for us. And here it is, the main idea of the sermon this morning. The gospel of the kingdom is good news. The gospel of the kingdom of God is good news. We're going to read now Matthew chapter 4, just one verse. We'll, we'll back it up and kind of look at some stuff that, that bookends this verse, but we're looking at chapter 4, verse 17. We'll let the reality of Jesus' words here inform our understanding of the issue of tithing. 
Hear now the words of the one true and living God from Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you by your spirit. We can understand it, that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And God, I pray that you would help me this morning to preach your perfect and fallible word to fallible people, myself included. Lord, help it to take root in our hearts. Help us to understand. Give us the mind of Christ. Give us ears and eyes to see, ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we look at that verse, that little itty bitty verse, and we say, that doesn't say anything about tithing. But yes, it does. It says a lot about it. You know, not if we're looking for uh, rules to follow, but certainly if we're looking to a king to follow. You won't find decimals and figures in that verse, but you will find a message that should excite you enough to invest in it. Something I hope you'll see is worth infinitely more than just 10%. But God is kind enough and generous enough to give us those train wheels to, to, as sort of a starting place. But the gospel of the kingdom is good news. That's the main idea. It's the first message Jesus preached. The kingdom of God has come. Let's back up a little bit to the beginning of chapter 4, okay? Just kind of see what, what's, what's led up to this. Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days and Satan tempts him. And for the first time, man does what he should have only ever done, which is to say no. God has said, it is written. That's what it is written means when he says that. It means God has said. Now look, consider the significance of that, okay? Consider what, what, what's happening there in that picture. Satan tempted Eve in the garden, didn't he? Right? And, and, and caused her to question God's word, what God had said. Has God really said? Surely you will not die. Jesus doesn't question what God said here. He uses what God said to shut the mouth of Satan and to resist temptation. He is what the image of God is supposed to be, and he has victory over Satan. Be gone, Satan, he says. As it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. All right, now let's look to what was it that Satan was tempting him with? What did Satan just tempt him with before Jesus said that? Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. He tempted him with all the kingdoms and glory. That's what Jesus came for. You realize that? That's what his father promised him. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your, the earth your possession. That's Psalm 2. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here in Matthew 4, the devil says, I'll give it all to you right now. And you won't have to die. All you have to do 
is bend the knee. Jesus didn't turn him down because he wasn't interested in the offer. The devil tempted him with it because he knew he was interested. Satan doesn't tempt us with what we don't want. He tempts us with what we do want. That's why it's called temptation. If it wasn't tempting, we wouldn't have... Saying no would be easy. But Jesus said no. He knew the kingdoms of the world and their glory wasn't the devil's to offer him. And it would only be gained by his obedience to the Father who made the promise to him, not by his disobedience. So he resisted that strong temptation, stood firmly on the promises of God. And then Satan, the powers of hell and his demons with him, shuddered. Man for once has resisted the devil. That's the beginning of the end right here. That was the beginning of the undoing of Satan's death grip on the earth. His kingdom began to crack and crumble. Yeah, it's like there was an earthquake in the universe at this point. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's how big a deal this is. The world has been asleep in chains for thousands of years, imprisoned and cursed by Adam's sin, and now a new Adam, a better Adam, has taken man's rightful place in the earth to fill it and to subdue it and to exercise dominion in it. It wasn't until after that event in the wilderness that Jesus began to preach. And what was his first sermon? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The rule of God is at hand. That's what he's saying. That's what that means, the rule of God. That's what it means when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus went around proclaiming this gospel, this good news of the kingdom. Look at verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Y'all don't miss it. This is Jesus punching the curse of death and sin in the face. He says, the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God has come into the world, and let me prove it to you. He reaches in to the fallen world corrupted by sin and starts yanking the cancer out right before their eyes. And the reason he does it is to demonstrate the truth of his message. I have brought the kingdom of God into the world, and it is good news for men. One of the most powerful demonstrations of the kingdom of God coming into the world was casting out demons. You think of these scenes, that the, the, the gospel accounts of Jesus casting out these demons. He's evicting these evil spirits in his own name, by his own authority, by his own power. You think about in Matthew 12, you can flip there if you want to. You see the Jews there accusing Jesus. They're saying Jesus is casting out these demons by the power of Satan. Remember that? And that's, of course, blasphemy. Jesus says so. He says, that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is unforgivable, right? But he, the way he answers their accusation is more of this, this kingdom talk. Check this out. Look at chapter 12, verse 25. 
Knowing their thoughts, it says, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. And how will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now listen, here's what he says. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then this kingdom of God has come upon you. You see that? How can you know the kingdom of God has come into the world? That it's here now? Jesus said it did. And one of the strongest proofs of that is that he cast out demons. Jesus didn't come into the world to get involved, y'all. He came to take over. He continues there in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house, as we says, right? A little analogy here. How can someone enter into a, a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he can plunder his house. The strong man is Satan, who has held sway in the world by his kingdom until this time. Okay? Up until now, well, from now on, he has been tied up and forced to watch as Jesus plunders all his goodies. That's what he's saying. Jesus has taken all his trophies and prizes and making them his own, staking claim over the earth that is rightfully his. The gospel of the kingdom is good news. And it's the gospel Jesus preached. The first look at the words of Jesus in the gospels is that he preached the good news of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from sin and following that fraudulent ruler that thief and that liar, the devil, renounce him in his works. Bend the knee to the king of glory and of peace. That's powerful stuff. It's powerful stuff. And notice, this is all before Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. This was before Jesus' atoning death that he's preaching the gospel. The gospel is not only that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is that, and anyone who says that the gospel does not include that, if they preach to you any other gospel, let them be anathema, let them be accursed. You can't have peace with God any other way. God expects perfect righteousness, none of us has it. But God expects perfect righteousness, and Jesus is that righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to us by faith, and we know that God exacts justice. He punishes sin. Christ's sacrifice for our sin was the only acceptable sacrifice, and it has been accepted by God. We've talked about this a lot in Hebrews recently, haven't we? It has been accepted by God, and so his death actually atones for our sin. The punishment that our sin deserves is done away with, and God's wrath is satisfied. That's all there. But that's not all that's there. It's a piece of the puzzle. But it's not the whole puzzle. He died, was buried, and rose again, securing salvation for us. But wait, there's more. He ascended into heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning 
over heaven and earth. Y'all, that's good news too. That's the gospel too. That's the gospel of the kingdom and Jesus himself and the apostles preached that gospel. The gospel of the kingdom. The rule of God in the world is good news. It's good news that Christ is on his throne and destroying the works of the devil. It's good news that Jesus conquers not only my uh, spiritual alienation from God, not only your spiritual alienation from God, but that he conquers death, the curse, curse of sin, the powers of Satan over the earth. He doesn't let Satan keep what he stole. You see there in Matthew uh, chapter 4, where we are, just two verses ahead, verse 15, Jesus fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. You see that there? There's this great light that has dawned where there was a shadow of death. Go to Isaiah 9 with me, if you have your Bible with you. Let's look where, where Matthew's lifting that, lifting that out of. Isaiah chapter 9, uh, we'll just look at verse 2 right there. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Y'all, that's us. We're, we're part of that. Promised to redeem those who are far off. He's brought his rule into the world. He's taking the nations for himself. And down there in verse 6, okay? Right? This is the same Isaiah Right? We're just in verse 2. Now, moving, moving on with this, this flow of thought, this Messiah that's coming to do that thing. Look down there in verse 6. We see this famous verse that we all start thinking about, and we're going to put it on our Christmas cards here shortly, right? This time of year when we're thinking about the incarnation, Christmas time. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's kingdom talk. That's not just speaking about salvation. That's speaking about royal authority. Keep going. Look at verse 7, what this says about this kingdom he brings. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Listen to this. Make sure this sticks, okay? Jesus has a government. And what it brings about is unimaginable blessing. We have a government. Man's government, what man's government does, it gives us some good things, it gives us some bad things, right? And your taxes pay for both, the good things and the bad things. And that tax is a lot higher than 10%, by the way. The 10% God talks about in the tithe is a demonstration of your allegiance to the king of this better, unbeatable, unstoppable, unfathomably glorious kingdom. It testifies to your interest in his kingdom and your interest in his, his governance in the earth. And it comes as a voluntary act of worship which communicates this cause 
is worthy. God is worthy of more than all that I have, but I'm so about this kingdom that I want to invest in it. And here's the thing I think we get mixed up sometimes. I think as Christians, sometimes we think of our tithes and offerings as thank you cards. Thank you for saving me, God. Here's a 20. And at some point, times drop off because we tie it to how thankful we're feeling in the moment. We only focus on what we perceive God is doing in our own lives, which is only ever a fraction of it too, isn't it? What you can perceive him doing in your own life and what he's actually doing. But we only focus on that. We, perce- we focus on what we perceive God is doing in our own lives, and so we miss the big picture of what God is doing in the world. And we miss what God's doing with our tithes and doing in us through our tithes. How grateful we feel about our salvation ebbs and flows, but what abides forever is the steadfast love of God, his worthiness, and his purpose for the world, his kingdom. He wants you to believe his promises. He wants that for us, for us to believe. He is at work. He's not on vacation. He didn't hit the pause button. He wants us to believe what he's about, that it's true. And he not only wants you to have skin in the game, it's not just that. He wants you to do it because you believe him, to believe he is who he says he is and that he does what he says he does. He wants your faith to increase. He wants it to become strong. So believe him. I preach to you today a gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. But I preach to you the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus brought with him when he came, and I tell you, it is good news. Jesus said it was. The apostles thought it was. They didn't truncate the gospel or shy away from this idea of Jesus' rule and reign. Paul says, actually, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Okay, So he's about to say what it is that he thinks is good news. He says, Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and then appeared to many. Right, But he doesn't stop there. He's not done yet. He gets into the resurrection stuff, right? Because the people that he's talking to, some of the Sadducees, they say there is no such thing as the resurrection. And he's saying, look, guys, if, if, if that's not true, if there is no resurrection, we are most of all to be pitied. But he doesn't stop there. He says there is a resurrection for us and that Jesus is the first fruits of it, that he went first. He goes before us. And then in the same breath, Paul talks about what must take place before we follow him in our bodily resurrection at the last day. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power for he must reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is finally defeated for us at the final resurrection. But what happens before that? Every rule and authority and power must be destroyed under Christ as king. He says all things must be put in subjection to him in order that God may be all in all. Paul's main point is that the redemption Christ brings and the rule and authority he possesses is going out to the ends of the earth. 
subduing it and filling it with his image bearers until he returns to overthrow physical death itself. One of the promises of the kingdom of God and the coming Messiah is that the knowledge of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. You get a picture of that? That, that, I mean, that's only everything, right? That's good news. It reminds me of the uh, Sherwin-Williams logo. You've seen the Sherwin-Williams paint company? Have you ever looked at their logo? It's, it's a paint can pouring out upside down over a globe, and it says, cover the earth. The kingdom's like that. Like a stone cut without human hands that strikes all of the other kingdoms and breaks them into pieces and then grows into a great mountain that fills the earth. Daniel 7. Um, That's Daniel 2. We did Daniel 7 already. If you look it up later, that's chapter 2. But those prophets, they had something to say about the Messiah and the good news of that kingdom that was coming. So did Jesus. He had things that, similar things to say about it, that it was a little mustard seed that grows into a big tree, that it was a, a little bit of leaven and a lump of dough that leavens the whole lump. So here's what I want us to see. The message of the gospel of the kingdom is good news. The message of the gospel is not that the church is going to be this fledgling thing that's barely getting by until Christ comes back. That, that, that we're waiting for Christ to return and then there'll be peace and justice in the world. Then he'll bring his kingdom. Then he'll rule. Here's the problem with that view. It wasn't Jesus' view. John didn't believe that. Paul didn't believe that. Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 19, Jesus is reconciling to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, that's good news. It's good news you got saved. I'm glad I did. It's good news that you have believed on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That is exceedingly great news. Hallelujah. It's also good news that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the world right now. That his government is pure, just, righteous, and unending. That means something. That kingdom brings about flourishing that exists not just in our imaginations, not just in our hearts and our private lives, but in the world. He is, as the better Adam, reversing the curse the first Adam brought on creation. Now here's the thing we all need to understand. If you've experienced peace with God through his death, through Christ's death, you have become a participant and this kingdom he has brought. Too often we think of the gospel as good news about a way out. But what scripture shows us is it's a way in. It's not a message of escape, it's a message of glory and honor and dominion breaking in and we've been invited into it. It's coming to the world and it's working its way through us in the church. If that's worth something to you, if it's of value, right, you'll invest in it. I mean, don't make it weird. We do this every place else, right? We put our money where our mouth is. 
You can tell how much we value something based on how much we're willing to spend. It's just a, it's just a fact of life. You can tell how much we really believe that thing is good and will, will do good for me. <laughs> so how much, right? Isn't that the question? That's where we lay in. We want to get down to the brass tacks. How much? Is it worth one in ten? A hundred of a thousand? Is it worth 10% of what we earn? If it's not, how much is it worth? The truth is, if we really understood how good the good news of the kingdom is, we'd realize it's worth infinitely more than anything that we have. It's, I mean, is 10% too much? You're investing four or five times more in a government that will not reconcile men to God. One that will not last. One that is not righteous and cannot promise peace and justice. And that money is taken from you by force. By people who don't love you. I mean, it's just true. Jesus does love you. Loves you enough to die for you. That's not an emotional plea or guilt trip. That's just a fact. Like, you can't be a Christian without believing that. Jesus loved you, loves you enough to die for you. The fact is, he does love you, he did die for you, and he doesn't ask you to give him money out of guilt or take it from you by force. What he does, y'all, he lays out a beautiful picture before you of what he's about and what he's doing and what he's accomplished and what's been accomplished already, and he says, this is worth it. Are you in? I know there are folks who will say, you know, when you talk about the one in ten, the tenth, the tithe thing. Paul said don't give under compulsion. Okay. So don't. Don't don't give under compulsion. Don't do that. Give because you see the bigger picture and you see it's worth it. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. Give not under compulsion, but give cheerfully. He's got this kingdom in mind, y'all. Okay? You realize that. And he hopes his audience does too. Can someone understand all these things, all the benefits of Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, his present rule over the earth and where everything is headed in him? And and, and then cheerfully, or, or be cheerful about giving the church its scraps and leftovers. I mean, when we're a part of an organization that needs money to, to stay engaged in the good works that we, that we say we're about, that we, that we back, that we want to be a part of, right? We say we believe in that. We expect to contribute significantly to that, don't we? The answer is, of course, yes, but how much more the kingdom of God? Think about what's possible as a result of what we know is true about the kingdom, how we live as a result of this good news of the kingdom. This means, you know, this means we should be planning for the future, right? You know, if if there's no future ahead of us, then I, I, I wouldn't blame you for not investing in it. But there's a future here. 
We should be laboring for the future, not letting things take their course, but running the course, running it well. Planting stakes in the ground, marking territory for Christ, not just planting churches and building things that last, but investing in our children, right? Thinking generationally, leaving a legacy. We have this expectation that Christ is accomplishing all he says he will, and so we should all together have this long-term commitment to disciple the nations, as he said we should. So yes, we are to give cheerfully, right? We're not just paying taxes here. It's not what we're doing, right? There, there is a fundamental difference there. I don't want to get you in the weeds on this. I promised I wouldn't. I want to stay focused on this, okay? But there's a fundamental difference. You had uh, the, the, the tithe in Israel that was, uh, it was a tax. You know? It was a tax. It looks a little bit different now, right? It's not, it's not going to fund uh, all, of our, uh, all of our government. Government steals more than that to do those things for us, right? But yes, we are to give cheerfully. Um, we're not just paying taxes, but here's the thing, right? Consider what we've talked about with the new covenant. We've been talking a ton about that in Hebrews, old covenant, new covenant. With all we know about the new covenant being a better covenant, how can we convince ourselves to feel cheerful about giving less? Have you considered that? You know, before you get bogged down in the details and the decimals and dollar signs and everything else, have you considered that? Why we do less in the new and better covenant? You know, statistically, y'all, only 4% of church-going, born-again Christians actually tithe. I'm going to say it differently, because I think it hits differently when you put it this way. 96% of church-going, born-again Christians will not give 10% of their income to the church. Why? I'm not saying there aren't other reasons, but with numbers like that, I think a big reason is they don't see the bigger picture. That's why the vast majority of the sermon has been on not numbers and figures and and proof texting and, and, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, tithing stuff, yada, yada. It's about the gospel of the kingdom. It's about understanding why that's good news and knowing why it's worth it. You know, if someone doesn't think it's worth it, if they don't think we're looking forward to a future worth investing in, how will they be convinced? They should give 10% or even more. They won't. They won't be convinced. They'll always be satisfied giving less and convince themselves they've done so cheerfully and thus met the requirement. Well, who's the legalist now? Who's worried about meeting requirements and checking boxes now? Who's focused on satisfying God by their own righteousness there? The one who gives 1% and says, I did it cheerfully, it counts. Or the one who gives 10% wishing they had more to give. I'll tell you what, I've never met a sorrowful tither. You know that? Talk about cheerful giver. I've never met a sorrowful tither in my life. Not one. I've never met anybody who has committed to that practice of 10% and regretted it. I've just never met one. 
And why, why do you think that is? Because as we often hear, it's true. You can't outgive God. You can't do it. He says, test me in this. Go big and see if I won't pour out so much blessing on you that you won't have room to store more. That's not the prosperity gospel. That's scripture. Okay? That's scripture. Well, that's Old Testament. Okay, sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Paul said that. New Testament, it counts. Sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Okay, that's different. The prosperity gospel says use God like a slot machine. That's what it says. Play the odds, right? Give to get. Scripture says trust God with even your money because he is trustworthy. He means blessing for you and he has plans for the world. Now some of those blessings that he has for you, they might be material blessings, right? He might increase your income. He often likes to increase the income of people he knows want to give more. He does that. You gotta realize God doesn't require us to give because He needs anything from us. He knows we require faithful giving in order to become more like Him. Generous. Not selfish, not miserly, not interested in bare minimums, but supplying everything in abundance. That's what the kingdom is like, and the king's subjects resemble the king. See? Now here's some real gritty boots on the ground application. We went big picture, right? Now we're going to zoom down into our tiny little corner of this earth Christ has plans for and say, well, what about me? What about here? What about now? Okay. We'll have the pledge cards next week, okay? But consider, go home later this afternoon after we enjoy this wonderful feast and this time that, that we're so fortunate and blessed to have. Later on this afternoon, don't forget about it. This afternoon, maybe this evening, set aside some time. Sit down and say, what do I want to see my church, King's Church, this little outpost of Christ's kingdom, be capable of next year? If you have a family, get the family together and talk about it. You know? How long do you want to see King's Church last? A few years? A hundred? A thousand? How soon would you like to see us have a building of our own? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? What impact do you hope our ministry will have long term? These are the big questions, y'all. This is how Christ uses his church. We've got to connect the dots. It's not just about lights and salaries and everything else. He is working. He's doing all these things we've talked about, and he's chosen the church. I know. <laughs> I know. Me? Me, Lord? <laughs> but he uses those humble, simple things, those broken things. He knows what to do with them in order to accomplish his ends. How much... What impact would you like to see our ministry have long-term? How many men would you like to see us send to seminary and launch out into the world of ministry? How many mothers who were considering aborting their babies would you like to see choose life and to turn to Christ in faith and to raise that child in our church? How many? 
How saturated with biblical Christian families would you like to see your city become? How holy would you like your town councilmen, judges, governors, house representatives, and senators to be? How soon would you like to see your state stop compromising with evil? If you think that's not possible, you have not believed the kingdom of God is at hand. (laughs) It's possible. He uses means to do it. He uses means to do it. What's it worth? Where where do you fit in? You know, as your family, where where do you fit in, right? Just ask the question, how can we contribute? What what can we move around so we're orienting our lives around this glorious gospel of the kingdom that we've been invited into to participate in? You know, just put in that work. Have those conversations. That's the idea. Let your mind be filled with the possibilities and your heart be filled with joy and excitement as you talk about those things and then decide, right? Don't put a number down before doing that. Don't, put, don't, don't just scratch something in. You'll have missed the point of why you're doing it, right? Aren't we doing it because God is worthy? He's worthy of all we have. We can't give him all we have, so how much do we give him? Well, think about these things. Think about what he's doing in the world and how he's using that. Commit to, commit to that. Commit to spending that time. Commit to that number and expect that commitment to result in blessing. It does. He doesn't hold out on you. Right? That's what they believed in the garden. God's holding back. He's holding out on me. We have the, we have the tendency to do that, but God is gracious. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's a God of abundance. And he does. He means blessing for us, for you personally, for your family, this church. Okay? He, he's, he's able. He's able to bless your city, your town, the country, the world, and its future, for sure. Because the gospel of the kingdom is good news. So I say this morning, y'all, believe it. Believe it, saints. The kingdom of God is good news. And as we think about these things, we can be excited about investing in it. Not like, oh, well, I don't know how much. You know? That's why we take the time to kind of come at this a different angle. Because we can get bogged down with, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do 2% more than I did last year. Yeah. Get the picture, right? Get excited about the picture. Believe it. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We pray, Lord, that your name would be famous in all the earth, and we would be your faithful servants in it for as long as we're here. We pray, Lord, your kingdom would continue to spread throughout the earth and leave no quarter for evil. We pray that your holy and righteous will would be done here on earth, even as it is in heaven. That is your will. We pray you would make it so. We thank you that you give us everything we need, Father, in order to do what you have called us to do, everything we need to live, our daily bread, provisions for today and hope for tomorrow. May that hope drive us to live and give generously, recognizing all we have truly does come from your hand. Lord, make us sensitive to the remaining indwelling sin in us that we battle every day. Help us to recognize it. Help us to recognize our need of forgiveness and to confess it quickly so we may be restored to you and to one another. We pray for your protection, Lord, that we would flee temptation, 
and be marked safe from the evil one who prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. For you, Lord Jesus, are our Savior and King of all. To you belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.